Anyway, uh, good morning. It's good to be in God's house um, and to be uh, to sing praises to Him and to get into His Word. Worship ought to prepare our hearts to hear God's Word. Too much in today's American churchianity uses worship uh, as a me- as as a as an end in and of itself. When it's always supposed to be a means, it should be a means to prepare our hearts to hear God's Word. Instead. Praise songs and choruses are used as a substitute for God's Word. So when praise and worship is used rightly, it bears good fruit. So let's uh, draw our attention to the last chapter of the Bible this morning. We are in the last chapter of Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible. And that's a good, good thing. That's a good thing. Last week we looked at the first two verses of chapter 22. We're still talking about the detailed blueprint of the church's future home. The very home Jesus said to his disciples he was going to prepare a place for them. And if God, like Keith Green used to say, if God made this world in six days and he's been preparing a home for us for 2,000 years, then this is living in a garbage can compared to what's up there. And I think you see that very clearly when you read these These verses in chapter 21 and chapter 22. So the first five verses of 22 are still dealing with the blueprint of that future city. Details given to us to evoke a response now. The details given to Israel were to evoke a response of shame for their sin and for their rebellion against God. They were to evoke a response to those who had come back from the captivity to strengthen their hands and take courage. And I think those should be the same responses for us today, that it would make us ashamed of our Laodicean lukewarmness, ashamed of all the things that the churches were rebuked for in chapter 2 and 3. We're guilty of all of them. I'm guilty of all of that. And that we would strengthen our hands for the days to come. And so um, after verse 5, of course, we get into the epilogue of the book. Last week we talked about the city's external civic affairs. That was a tree of life and a river of life. And I was thinking back on that, the description here of the river of life that flows from the throne of God and provides water and sustenance to the city. And it provides water and sustenance for the tree of life. What was once a single tree in a garden is now an entire species of tree in abundance. And I was thinking of an image or a similar thing that I remember from Nepal. And it's funny how... The devil and the devils try to counterfeit everything God does. And in doing so, it's almost like they're bound to put the truth out there, or at least a shadow of the truth. The devil is a great deceiver. And in order for him to be really good at his job, deceiving, then there has to be, the truth has to be out there, or he's not a deceiver. If the truth is not accessible, then he's not a deceiver. And so the devil's real good at putting the truth out there for you. It's there. And then deceiving you into turning your attention away from it and to his lies. And so you'll see kind of shadow images that reflect back or allude back on revelation from God's word in the false devil religions of men. And I thought about something from Nepal. There's a temple in Kathmandu. That temple is dedicated to the Hindu god Shiva. 
Shiva is the Hindu version of the serpent. He is the destroyer. We know the serpent, the devil, is the destroyer. In fact, he's called that in Revelation, Apollyon or Abaddon, the destroyer. And many, many years ago when the English were colonizing the Indian subcontinent, they were never able to conquer the Nepali people. They were never able to colonize Nepal as they did India. And during that time, the Nepali people didn't want to be colonized and they pledged themselves as a people to the god Shiva if he would protect them and give them victory over the British. The British were never able to colonize. They found the Nepali Gorkha soldiers to be unconquerable and especially fierce fighters. Thereafter, they would recruit Gorkhas to be in their army, and they still are to this day. If you're recruited into that Gorkha army and serve in the British army as a Gorkha soldier, then you can receive a pension for the rest of your life, and you can go live in the U.K., uh, for the rest of your life. And so that still goes on today. But those Gorkhas pledged themselves to Shiva, as did the nation. So in a sense, the nation sold itself to the devil if he would protect them from the British. And so outside of Kathmandu, even today, is a giant statue of Shiva that was put up all, not all that long ago to overlook the city. And, of course, you go there and you see the epitome of the curse, the curse of sin. It's everywhere, the darkness, the spiritual darkness. And so at this temple dedicated to Shiva in Kathmandu, there's a fountain. And there's a fountain that they, these priests and these sadhus and the people would go to and they'll wash their face in it and dunk their babies in it and all kinds of stuff. And they say it is a fountain that comes from Shiva himself flows from him. It flows from his throne. There's a lake above Kathmandu. I've hiked there. It's, I think it's, I don't know, 17, 16, 17,000 feet in elevation called Gosain Kund Lake. And that's supposed to be the, the, the abode of Shiva. And that fountain supposedly brings water from that lake. Now, that's not, well, there's no pipes or nothing. I mean, it's just all legend. It's not true. But that lake is the source of Shiva's throne, his power. And uh, some say it's on top of uh, a mountain over in Tibet. But anyway, this special lake supposedly empties into Kathmandu. And so it's supposedly, that lake is the center of Shiva's reproductive system and it drains out there in that temple. And so it's this idea that from this throne of the devil flows this life-giving water that people will come and partake of and wash their face in or whatever. If you wanted me to sum up Nepali religion, their patron deity is Shiva. That's not the patron deity necessarily of other peoples and other provinces that, uh, in India or other places around the world that are Hindus. But if you wanted me to sum up Hindu religion in Nepal, it would be this. Shiva is God and he wants everybody to worship his penis. That's it. And so that's what that image, that image is supposed to, you know, that's supposed to be his penis emptying out there in that, that, uh, that temple. And people really believe it and they go dunk themselves in it and all this kind of stuff. What a perverted example of what's pure here. But even the devils know what's coming. Why do you think they're out here trying to deceive everybody about all this aliens and the, the great reveal of UFOs and all this kind of stuff? 
Because the devil knows and mothership's coming to this earth. And it's going to hover above the sun and the moon, above the mountains. It's called the mountain of the Lord's house. It's going to be the, sh- the home of the saints. And it's going to be God's throne come down to men. And it's victory over all that is evil. And so Satan has a great way of deceiving the nations, but the truth is always out there. And it's oftentimes pictured even in false religions. What's amazing to me is that Nepal is a society that long ago sold its soul to the devil, in effect. And yet, even there today, there are understandings and concepts of basic morality that we here in America who are spiritually fat on the truth of God, have been fed it over and over and over again, even we don't stick don't hold to these basic concepts of morality. In, in Nepal, they, they know that homosexuality and transgenderism is confusion. It's not accepted. It's an abomination. In Nepal, they know that boys can't be girls and girls can't be boys. It's greatly frowned upon to murder your own children. It's considered confusion. And even things like adultery... They happen, but they're kept secret. And they're in the shadows because there's shame associated with it. So even in a society that in effect has sold itself to the destroyer, there's still a basic understanding of morality such that a lot of what we shout and celebrate and we welcome into our churches here is done in secret there because there's shame associated with it. That ought to make us ashamed. We need to be real careful as Americans in talking about the evils of other nations. We need to be real careful. We need to look in the mirror. We need to be real careful about talking about the evils of Russia and how evil it is for Russia to go into Ukraine. When this country went into Kosovo all those, those years ago, you forgot that. When we, took, when we invaded an independent nation back during Bill Clinton's administration, And it is wicked as hell before God for us to say we're good when we do it, but someone else is bad when we don't. That's called hypocrisy, and that's wicked. And so we just need to be careful about that stuff. And when we view these elements of perfection that await our future home, it ought to make us tread carefully, just like it did Ahab. King Ahab, as wicked as he was, there was a period when the prophet came and rebuked him And it said that he tread very carefully after that. And as a result, the judgment that was prophesied upon his house didn't come in his lifetime because of his humility. So let's keep these things in mind. We talked about the inward affairs of a river of life and a tree of life. Let's go to verses 3 through 5 today. We're still looking at the civic affairs of this city, and I want to look at the internal affairs. We looked at the external. I misspoke a minute ago. The external that which is directed outward, a tree of life, the whole species everywhere, its leaves are for the healing of the nations, and a river of life that flows outward. Let's look at what's directed inward, the inward or internal affairs of this city, the future home of the saints, the land's wife. Verse 3, And there shall be no more curse, But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. And they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads. 
and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. We often talk about he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. But never forget that the saints are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. They shall reign forever and ever. We shall reign forever and ever. Maybe we should live like that. Let's act like it. But these internal affairs, number one, there's three things here. What I call idyllic society. Perfect. Not utopic. That word utopia is associated with man-made stuff. I don't even like to use it. We're not talking about a utopia here. All man-made attempts at utopia fail. Okay? We talk about the Nazis so arrogantly as as how evil they were, and they were. But it's funny how Americans today, I've been watching some documentaries on on YouTube. I'm just kind of interested in how quickly that arose and how quickly it fell. We'd, be, we'd do well to learn from those things. But it's just amazing to listen to commentators from our day and time sit there and look down their nose and speak of the Nazis as if they were so evil and we would never do something like that. It amazes me to see people today look so arrogantly in judgment and condescension upon other ages of history. I'm not trying to minimize the evil there. But the reasons the Nazis did what they did is not because they were more evil than anybody else. It's because they were anybody else. Every single one of us capable of that. Every single man born of Adam, born in the flesh, is capable of everything that the Nazis did. And unless we recognize that... We can't appreciate and understand what Jesus did for us and how Jesus can regenerate us. You know, a lot of people get upset. They can't comprehend the fact that as long as Hitler had life and breath in his body, there was as much hope for him to be born again and regenerated as there is for the moral religious person down the street. Now, that makes religious people angry. But that's the gospel. The reason the Nazis did what they did is because they are anybody else, not because they were worse than anybody else. And I'm going to tell you right now, there's people in this country today that are just as evil, just as wicked, and would do the same thing if they had the power to do it. And there's a lot of professing Christians in this country where if the government goes a certain way and certain people have power and it allows them to freely exercise what's in their heart, you can rest assured that Americans will be saying death to the Jew and prison for the Christian. It'll happen. It'll happen. Notwithstanding, we're talking idyllic society. Idyllic's not utopia. It's perfect. Perfect. Idyllic. I-D-Y-L-L-I-C society. We also have access A great internal affair here is access. Access to the throne. And then a guaranteed livelihood. That's what awaits the residents of this city. Idyllic society, access, and a guaranteed livelihood. Let's talk about that first one. Verse 3, the very first part. What's at the heart of this future idyllic society? And there shall be no more curse. 
We often forget in our time of technological advancement that we live under a curse. The curse of sin is real. Now, we try to hide ourselves from it, but it's real. And if you think that our technological advancements are actually advancements, you're woefully deceived. I was reading an article this past week. I, be, it was, I believe it was in Chicago. In 1930, there was an office building that was multiple stories high. And in 1930, that office building had to literally be rotated to make room for an addition that was going to be added. And so in 1930 in Chicago, this Indiana company, construction company, took an office building and successfully rotated the building without taking it apart. And the amazing thing is, is that the people working there never had to miss a day of work. They did it while the people were inside working, and it was no danger. 1930. And we think because we carry this thing around that we're better and more, we're more advanced and smarter than those people. Now, we couldn't do that today. That couldn't happen today. We're not smarter and more advanced. We're just more enslaved. Making something more convenient where we have to exercise less effort to use it doesn't make us advanced. It makes us weak and lazy. You know, look at this society today. If you look at where... The millennial generation is in terms of their productivity, their income, and their assets when compared to their parents' generation. The whole thing's flipped. It's flipped upside down. The future of this is not good. It's a crash and a fall. And it's probably the rising up of something that we would cheer initially, but it's going to be, a lot more, it's going to be just as evil is what came in Germany. That's probably what's on the horizon. So we do well to worry more about our future home than, than the stuff here because it, you know, this is not going to last. But what we have to look forward to isn't the curse. The best that this country can give the world is still under a curse. No more curse. Turn to Genesis 3. Let's just go back and revisit. What is the curse of sin? Because in our developed society, we kind of can hide ourselves from it a little bit more than the villager can in the third world. Genesis chapter 3. We're at the end of Revelation. We might, might as well go back to the beginning of Genesis because it's all one book. It's all God's revelation. And Revelation, the book is a consummation of everything that began in Genesis. Adam... Hides from God. God's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He had perfect fellowship with Adam and Eve. And he asks for Adam. Adam's not there. Where are you? And then Adam discovers himself and says, I was hiding. I was naked. I'm sorry. And God's like, well, who told you you were naked? I'm going to read verse 12. It's really not uh, uh, central to the point I'm trying to make, but we need to remind ourselves. And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Never forget... Adam didn't blame Eve here. Adam does what we all do when something goes wrong. We blame God. Adam blamed God. The woman you gave to me did it. Don't blame me. It was her fault. Everybody's a victim. Why? Because our first father, we follow his example. Adam blamed God. Are we any different? And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? 
And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle. So we have that word cursed. And above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and the dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. So God curses the serpent. There was probably a little more that went on here. It's greatly implied uh, when you consider uh, the subtlety and the familiarity that that Eve had with the serpent and then what she says here in Genesis chapter 4 when Cain comes to the world. I'm not going to get into all that. There are things that are implied here that aren't openly stated that are very interesting. So it's not a little fairy tale story like we tell in Sunday school. There's a lot more involved here. Okay? But the serpent is cursed. Remember, the serpent was Lucifer. We refer to him as a fallen angel. He's not a fallen angel. He's a cherub, the anointed cherub. Back in Revelation 4, remember the cherubim are around the throne. They're described as beast-like creatures full of eyes. The man is represented there. The, 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 the fowls of the air are represented there. The cattle are represented there. And the beast of, and then the, the domesticated animal and then the wild animal is, is uh, represented there. But the, the sea creature or the reptile is not represented. That's Satan. He's a fallen cherub. And he's transformed into an angel of light, Paul says. He's not an angel of light or an angel. He's transformed. He was the anointed cherub that had tried to usurp God's power and authority and he was thrown down. And he can transform himself into a whole lot of things. whole lot of things. Beware. But the serpent is cursed. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Here we have what's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. The seed of the woman. Woman doesn't have a seed unless it's a virgin birth. And the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent is Antichrist. The seed of the woman, the number one most talked about individual in all of Scripture, the Messiah, prophesied and fulfilled and coming again. The second most talked about character in all of the Scripture is the seed of the serpent, the false Messiah, the pseudo-Messiah. The Antichrist, prophesied in great detail, talked about in Revelation, overthrown by the Messiah at His coming. We do well to study the person and work of Antichrist, and I've said this in here before, and we've done, we've done that in detail in this exegetical study of Revelation. Because if we know Him and what's said about Him, we can recognize His Spirit, and His Spirit's everywhere. His Spirit is plopped on top of Washington, D.C., and not a thing that comes out of there is righteous or holy from either side of that political aisle. But the curse, the proto-evangelium there, the first gospel, unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, and sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. People don't like that part, but it's what God said, and it's part of the curse. And unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife. Adam wasn't a man in his home. Adam didn't rule over his home as he was supposed to. Did listen to his wife and not to God. And hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. 
There's the, there's the heart of it, guys. Cursed is the ground. We live on cursed ground. This earth is cursed because of sin. That doesn't mean there's not beautiful things here. That doesn't mean there's not elements of God's creation that we can't be in awe and, and magnify God. But understand, everything here at best is just a shadow. What we see in the heavens this night is just a shadow. And if it's just a shadow and it's tainted by the curse, who do we to think that we can know everything about heavenly bodies when we don't even go up there? Men are so arrogant. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns and thistles also shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Man sweats because of the curse. Till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou take it for dust, taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Okay? Eve was the mother of all living. There's no aliens in outer space and other civilizations. Eve is there, I, I would say there's no such thing as outer space, the way it's defined by NASA, but we'll, we'll, we won't get into that. But Eve is the mother of all living, all living souls. It's God, it's His creation, heaven is His throne, earth is His footstool, and man is the pinnacle of His creation, made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. Not some advanced race on some other planet out there. That's all garbage. That's all satanic lies because he knows what's coming and he's trying to deceive the world and unite the world to try to stand and fight this Messiah that's coming. And men are foolish enough to think that they can do that. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. God sacrificed, a blood sacrifice to clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Since that day, man knows good and evil. He has a conscience. He knows what's right and wrong. He's not innocent anymore. Lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was, ta whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. The ground was cursed. Man was banned from the tree of life. The tree of life is in the new Jerusalem, and it's again accessible. And therefore, there's no more curse. So the curse is bound to the tree of life. When the tree of life is barred, when and where it was barred, the ground was cursed. When and where access comes again, there is no more curse. There is none of this in the new Jerusalem. There is none of this in the heaven, new heavens and the new earth. God says, behold, I make all things new. The former things are passed away. I don't even know if we can conceive life without the curse. Man-made concepts of utopia or idyllic society are woefully inept and they always lead to prison camps and mass graves. When I think about the curse, I think about something that is lost on a lot of folks. This idea that because someone or a group of people have never heard the gospel, they've never heard from God. Well, that's simply not true. Many people have never heard the gospel 
But every living, breathing human being that's ever been born since the curse came into being has heard from God. Every one of them. God speaks to everyone. I, I wrote a tract about this years ago, and I used to do a paintboard message on the street when I was preaching. And I wrote a tract called, Haven't You Heard? And it talked about the three voices from God that every single one of us have heard. Three C's. Creation tells us that there's a creator and an owner of all things. Everybody's heard that voice. They may not listen to it, but they've heard it. The curse is another voice we've all heard and seen, whether we're listening to it or not. The curse tells us that there's a problem between the creator and his creation. It's obvious. Then there's the conscience. Every man has a conscience. That's a voice from God. It's a warning bell that says guilty. This is right. This is wrong. When you choose wrong, you're guilty. Everybody's heard that because everybody's had a conscience given by God, the law of God written on their hearts, Paul said. And the conscience tells us that the problem between the Creator and the creation is personal. God's got a problem with you. Everybody's heard that. And so when we would go and preach in Kathmandu, we do it knowing that people have heard these things. And God's voice and the creation, the curse and the conscience declare the problem. They declare justice. They declare God's judgment. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows the problem. But the message of the cross and why we've got to carry it to the ends of the earth is that there's a solution to that problem. God took on the punishment Himself and paid the price so that we could be redeemed for these things. But when I talk about the curse, I, I just went back and revisited uh, this little tract I printed years ago. I've actually, it's actually been translated into three languages. But I thought I'd read this. I kind of start out, you know, haven't you heard? You know, you've heard from God. Listen to the creation. Listen to the curse. Listen to your conscience. Behold the cross. These are the main headings. This is not about religion. Almighty God's not a beggar. Oh, so you claim to be a Christian. In conclusion. But I wanted to read to you what I said. I thought this is a good little understanding of the curse. And what one day we will not have to worry about in our future home. The second way in which God has spoken to you and every other person on this earth is through the message of the curse. Buddha believed that suffering in the world was due to desire. In other words, if one could reach a point of no desire, then there would be no suffering. Hindu gurus have long taught that life involves an endless cycle of birth and rebirth that only karma can perhaps, not surely, perhaps combat. Muhammad, according to the Hadith, sought forgiveness 70 times a day but never could find it. These all felt the reality of the curse. Genesis 1-3 through in the Holy Bible tells us about the creation, the origin of humanity, and the spiritual and moral fall of the first man and woman in the Garden of Eden. Because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, sin and death came into the world and a holy God cursed creation and mankind. Look around. Evil, sickness, death, disease, natural disasters, vanity, and corruption are everywhere. Many would blame God 
or deny his very existence because of these things. But the fault is ours. The earth is ravaged by storms, trembles with earthquakes, spews forth molten lava from volcanoes. Why? Society is overrun by wickedness, ruled by corrupt governments and politicians, and dominated by survival of the fittest. Why? It is because of the curse of sin. And even this is a message from God for all of us. There is a problem between the Creator and His creation, and woe unto him that striveth with his Maker. Some live close to the curse, while others try to shield themselves from it. A third world villager faces the reality of this curse daily. Why won't my crops grow? Why is my child sick? Why did a wild beast kill my neighbor? The inevitable response is there must be something wrong with me or my family or my village. Because many do not know the Most High God, these may try to deal with the curse by offering sacrifices and performing rituals to appease the spirits, the mountains, the sun, the sky, their ancestors, etc., turning to the creation when they should be looking to the Creator. In the world of technology and affluent society, people shield themselves from the curse. If I'm sick, I get medicine. If I'm hungry, I find food. If I'm uncomfortable, I find convenience and forget that there's a problem. Still, denial and convenience cannot erase reality. We are surrounded by sickness and death, or sickness and disease, and death. The greatest proof of the curse is all around us. Ten out of ten people die, and so will you. The cry of the hour may be live strong, but the truth of the curse says otherwise. Live strong, die anyway. Haven't you heard? Yes, you've already been told by God Himself through creation and the curse. There is a Creator And there is a problem between the Creator and His creation. As the time nears for God to judge this world in righteousness as He promised to do, these messages will only grow louder. Are you listening? That's the curse. And we're faced with it every day. It's a warning. But we don't listen. One day there will be no curse. No curse. The curse of sin guarantees that all man-made attempts or experiments with peace on earth will utterly fail. It guarantees the ultimate failure of the United Nations. Just like the League of Nations failed woefully after World War I. It guarantees the ultimate failure and foolishness of the World Health Organization. It guarantees the demise and the failure of the CDC and the U.S. government. These things are doomed to fail because of the curse of sin. Did you know that the United States, long before, centuries before it was even conceived in the mind of our founders, had a guaranteed doom? God guaranteed the fall of this nation long before it was even a fault in a British person's mind who fled the British Isles and came to the New World. Kind of a side note, Jeremiah 30, 11, and all of this is a result of the curse. That's why God rose up Israel to teach the nations about righteousness because of the curse. 
Jeremiah 30, 11, this is where some things are prophesied about Israel and their restoration in the future. It's a pretty profound statement made here, and this ought to give us pause when we think about the future of our nation and, and the real value of elections and listen to these liars on both sides of the political aisle try to deceive us as an election's coming up. Gas always goes down when elections coming up. Don't forget that 375 or 359 is not cheap. God says to Israel, after he talks about them being saved out of the time of Jacob's trouble, after he talks about them being regathered into the land and unbelief, some things that some of you all, we all have seen in our lifetime. Jeremiah 30, 11, For I am with thee, this is the, the remnant of Israel, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations, whether I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. Here God guarantees the doom of the United States of America. God said He's going to make a full end of every nation where Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were scattered. Still today, outside of Israel, the modern state, outside of Israel, the modern state, there are more Jews scattered and living in America than there are any other single nation. This, this country's future is written. It's, not, it's doom. It's destruction. It's judgment. Just like God's judgment fell upon Babylon and upon Persia and upon the Greeks who persecuted the Jews, upon the Romans who tore down that second temple and upon Nazi Germany. The crazy thing about the Nazis and their foolishness is they supposedly wanted to move all the Jews out of Germany. Get them out of here so we can have this for ourselves. We don't want them in our society. And then Hitler goes out conquering territories and invades Poland and conquers lands that bring way more Jews mm -hmm. under German jurisdiction than were there before. I mean, these fools didn't even know what they were doing. They were so blinded by their evil. And our government today is no different. These liars up there in Washington are just as evil and wicked and just as blind and stupid. In a way, it could be said that the Nazis were more righteous because at least the Nazis didn't try to butcher entire generations of their own people. You know, we butcher millions of our own babies, our own people. If that's not more wicked than butchering other people, it's definitely more foolish because it guarantees... The destruction of your civilization. All the curse. Man is cursed. We need a Messiah. We need a Savior. We can only be made right. There can only be peace on earth when the Messiah himself comes. But the de destruction of our country has been guaranteed. One word in the Bible, one word, one word alone proves the Bible is true and can be trusted. Israel. Never forget that. It proves it. We can trust God's promises for the church. We can trust that there's a city for us one day with no more curse because God has kept His promises to Israel and will. One day, the curse, like the USA, and those who devoured Israel shall be no more. In that same Jeremiah 31, 16, not only does God promise to destroy and make a full end of all the nations where He has scattered the Jew... He also says to her in verse 16, uh, let's see, 30 verse 16, Therefore all they that devour thee shall be devoured. 
You know, the USA and the New York Times told people living in America in the early 1940s that all that stuff about Jews, Nazis killing a bunch of Jews, it's all conspiracy theory. It's not happening. That's, <laughs> that's what happened. And those people are no different today. That same wicked spirit of Antichrist. But God says he's not only going to make a full end of the nations where they're scattered, he's going to devour those that devoured his people. And he did. He's done it to all of them. And he's going to do it to this country too. Because you can mark my words. If we don't have revival in this country, if we don't have spiritual awakening in our street, mark my words. I don't care what party is in power. You're going to start hearing your, your neighbor blaming the Jews. The Jews are at fault. And then they're going to blame the church. So it doesn't matter what side of the political aisle. If we don't get revival and spiritual awakening in this country, that are, there are people in the churches that will be calling for the death of Jews and the imprisonment of Bible believers. Mark my words. But those who devour Israel, as we saw there in Revelation chapter 12, when the dragon tried to devour the woman, and God hit her, and the, the earth opened up her mouth and swallowed the judgment that came, God preserves Israel during the tribulation. God's going to devour those that devour her. And God's going to exact vengeance on those that come against His church. But one day, just like those who try to devour Israel and the church, neither will the curse be. They will be no more and neither will the curse. Now we're told in chapter 21 that... Or John sees a new heavens and a new earth. And we know that there will be no curse in the new heavens and the new earth. Obviously. We talked about what will be that has never been. In the new heavens and the new earth, God will actually have his residence amongst men. It's never been there. And then there won't be what has always been. Neither sorrow nor crying. Nor, no more pain. No death. The former things are passed away. So obviously no more curse in the new heavens and the new earth. But here in verse 3, it's not talking about the new heavens and the new earth. It's not repeating what's already been said. It's talking about within the city of the new Jerusalem. Another indication or clue that this heavenly home of the saints will be present in the present creation during the millennium. Suspended above the earth and the seat of God's authority during the thousand year reign of the Messiah in this present creation. Here, this is an internal affair. No more curse in the city, the new Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, this is called the mountain of the Lord's house. Or it's called the holy mountain. In Zechariah chapter 8 verse 3, distinguishing it from earthly Jerusalem, the city of truth. Now, during the millennium on the earth, the earth itself, and we've talked about this, much of what we see is healed. The Dead Sea is healed and becomes full of fish. And there's great topographical changes all over the world, just like there was after Noah's flood. But the curse is still here. Okay? And the proof are things that you read throughout the Old Testament. Ezekiel 47.11, many places are unhealed. The salt marshes at the south end of the Dead Sea are not healed. They're given to salt. Nothing will grow there. Well, that's still remnants of the curse. 
Zechariah 14, 18, those that don't come up and bring honor to the Lord during the millennium on their land will be famine. And no plague, I mean, there'll be plague and no rain. Ezekiel 47, 10, there'll be fishermen at the Dead Sea hauling in fish. Well, if you're hauling in fish, there's death. Adam and Eve didn't eat meat. There was no death. Ezekiel 46, there's temple sacrifices and bloodshed in the millennial temple. Israel's community service. They promised God they'd do everything He commanded them at Sinai and they never did, so they're going to do it. Don't tell God you're going to do something and not do it. You will do it. And then Revelation 2, 26 and 27, the remnant at Thyatira is told, He that overcometh, to him will I give power over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. If there's no curse on the millennial earth, then there's no need to rule with a rod of iron because there's no evil, sickness, disease, or death. You wouldn't need to rule with a rod of iron. So those things remain and they come out again when the, the devil is loosed and the, the, the kingdoms of the earth try to surround the camp of the saints and overthrow even Messiah when he's present. So I believe this is referring to the city itself here. There are three primary Old Testament passages concerning life in the millennial reign of the Messiah. If you go back and listen to the podcast episodes of this study, number 141 and number 142, we talked about these. Three main passages that detail millennial life. Isaiah 11 and 12, Micah 4, and Zechariah 14. You can take note of, note of these. But what will no more curse look like in the new Jerusalem suspended above the earth? What will it look like? Well, we're told. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. And I'm going to show you that this is talking about being within the city. In other words, what's in the city in the millennium is a foreview or a little taste of what's going to be all of creation in the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah 11, 1 through 9, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The roots looked like they were all dried up, but there'd be a sprout that would come out. God preserved the Messianic line. Jesus Christ came into the world of the line of David, both on his legal father's side, Joseph, and on his mother's side. He was the seed of the woman. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of the knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. There is the sevenfold spirit of God right there. In Revelation 4 and 5, we see the sevenfold spirit of God, the Holy Spirit in His fullness, the burning in front of the throne. Upon the Messiah would be the fullness of the Holy Spirit, not just the indwelling, but the fullness of that sevenfold spirit right there. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. In other words, Jesus Christ knows enough truth not to believe everything he hears or even everything he sees. You can't trust everything you see and you certainly can't believe everything you hear. But he will judge in righteousness. And we're told in John 2 that he knew where men's hearts were. He didn't commit himself to anyone. He knew what was in man. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And she, he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. That's the second advent. 
and with the breath of his lips, he does slay the Antichrist and the false prophet and cast them alive into the lake of fire and slays all those gathered against him. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The millennial reign. Righteousness and faithfulness. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. That's another word for a spider, a dangerous spider. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. So these things are in God's holy mountain. The mountain of the Lord's house is the new Jerusalem. There won't be any carnivorous activity within there. All of these wild animals will be there and they'll be dwelling one with another and children will be playing with them. There'll be no more curse in God's holy mountain. There, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all, all, my, all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So what you see here is a picture of God's holy mountain that will be knowledge to the rest of the whole world. Well, that's the picture we see here, suspended above the sun and the, the moon, suspended above the earth, invisible for all to see. It's knowledge. What's there is knowledge to the whole world of what is to come when God recreates everything. The new Jerusalem is the mountain of the Lord's house. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 2, it's described this way. And you see the exact same wording in Micah chapter 4. It shall come to pass in the last days. Okay, we're talking about the present creation, the last days. If you're talking about the new creation, you're talking about the first days. In the last days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. Well, isn't that what we just read about here? That the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor. The nations will bring their glory and honor into it. And it's established where? Above the top of the mountains. Above the highest hills is the mountain of the Lord's house. This is the new Jerusalem that's descended down. And it is knowledge to the whole world because within its gates that all can see, the lion will lay down with the lamb. No more curse. I talked at the end of chapter 21 about VIP access to the city. There are things that will no, in no wise enter into the new Jerusalem. And I talked about VIP access. The kings will bring their glory and honor into it somehow. I don't know what that looks like exactly. The nations will come for healing from the leaves of the tree of life. It will be knowledge to the whole earth in the millennial reign of Christ. I don't know if that forwards through the earthly Jerusalem. I don't know what that all looks like. And it may be that kings of the earth, at the time, the descendants of those that survived the great battle, the last battle, will have access, but it's only believers who will live there. Only believers, only the church will live there. It may be that people can come and go because the gates are open. But only the, the church can live there. And where, where she lives for that thousand years, there'll be no more curse. So when the new heaven and the new earth comes, 
for the believer, for the church, it's just going to be what was in one, one locale is going to be everywhere. We're going to be kind of used to it by then. So I do believe this is talking about within the city uh, during the millennium. And what is there will also be in the new heavens and new earth, but it will apply to everything. No more curse. Praise the Lord. We're told in verse 3, the, the, the second part of that verse, that the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. That is the new city. The first internal civic affair is idyllic society, no, no curse within its limits. And then secondly is access. Access to the throne of God for all that live there and come there. This is the same throne as we see in chapter 4, verse 3. John saw it when he was raptured up to heaven. It was surrounded by a rainbow, a great sign that the storm for the church is over. When that rapture trumpet blows, that trumpet of God, the storm for the church will be over. But this is the throne of God and of the Lamb. It's one throne. It's God's and it's the Lamb's. Jesus is God. Very simple. That's why it can be said that God's throne is the Lamb's throne because Jesus Christ is God. Period. The way you can spot false teaching 10 miles away is what they have to say about Jesus. And if they hem-haw around the fact that He is God and that He is, has all power and all authority, then watch out. I don't care if everything else they say is true. I don't care if they say abortion's wrong. I don't say, care if they say homosexuality is a sin. I don't care if they say that, 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 that Joe Biden's a fake president. I don't care if they say that liberalism is a mental disorder. If they hem-haul around about whether Jesus Christ is God, watch out. He's God. And God's throne in the New Jerusalem is His thrones. And we're told in Ephesians 2.18... When I think about this throne, I think about access. Ephesians 2.18 For through Him, that is the Messiah, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Through Jesus, we have access to God. Spiritually. But one day it's literally. Access to God's throne. Now we also have Messiah's throne. His throne. His own throne, the throne of the father, his father David, that he will be sitting upon in the earthly Jerusalem during the millennium. So you have the throne of God and of the Lamb in the new Jerusalem, and you have the Messiah's throne, which is his own throne, the throne of his father David that the angel prophesied to Mary Christ would one day sit there. And it's like, well, how in the world is Jesus and his throne and his presence up in the new Jerusalem and at, on the earth at the same time? Well, Jesus tells us how that's possible. Turn to John 3.13. little verse here. Satan gets his little sub subtle talons in here and messes with God's Word. And most people never catch it. Kind of like he did with Eve there in the garden. John 3.13. Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and he's talking about Spiritual and heavenly things. And Nicodemus can't see past the earthly. Jesus says in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? 
Jesus was astounded. You're a teacher of Israel. You don't know this stuff? Verse 13, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man. And here's your last four verse, last four words that you won't find in most modern Bibles that have been translated since 1880. Which is in heaven. Think about that. Jesus on earth, talking to Nicodemus, speaks of himself as the Son of Man and claims to be in heaven at the moment he's talking to him on the earth. Now, why do you think these modern Bibles and the ESV and everything cut that out? That's the deity of Christ, subtly cut out, which is in heaven. If you got a Bible that don't have those words right there in John 3, 13, you need to get rid of it and get your real Bible. John 3, 13, which is in heaven. You have the Son of Man on earth and in heaven at the same time. You have the same thing during the millennium. The Son of Man reigning in His throne, the throne of His Father David on earth, and sitting on the throne of God and the Lamb in the New Jerusalem. Now it's funny to me how all these blind, egotistical, professing Bible scholars who do these translations, and they cut these words out, like, these, like they have been in this verse, like I said, in almost every single modern English translation since 1880. You'll find them in that King James. They, they, they can't conceive or imagine that Christ could be on earth and in heaven at the same time. They just can't imagine that. When that is precisely the state of us Christians right now in this present age. If we believe the Bible. I mean, are we not on earth and in heaven at the same time right now if we believe the Bible? I just read to you from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6 says, verse 5, read verse 5, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I mean, according to that, we're sitting in heavenly places right now. In heaven and on earth at the same time. If you've been born again, you have eternal life now. Your home's already in heaven, even though you're not there. Philippians 3.20, same thing. For our conversation is, right now, in heaven. Conversation is not your speech, it's your lifestyle. It's more than your speech, it's how you conduct yourself. Our conversation or our citizenship is in heaven from whence. So we're from heaven. We are looking for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So in a sense, spiritually, we are on earth and in heaven at the same time. These things are so, are so certain and as good as done, they can be spoken of in the past and the present tense. So why is it so hard to conceive that Jesus can be on earth and in heaven at the same time? It's funny how these... Scholars, you know, try to figure all this stuff out and just don't have faith to believe the Bible for what it says, and so they try to change it. We have no right to change the Word of God to make it more easy for people to understand. We have no right to do that. These scholars that start messing with the Bible are either stupid, and if they're stupid, we don't need to be listening to them, or they're just plain lost. They're just plain false. Be careful. I was, we were... We've been kind of going through the Gospel of Mark 
uh, in my family. The Gospel of Mark is one of the shortest Gospels, very succinct, very concise. And there's a lot of things in there. I call them mile markers or mile posts. Things that Jesus says very bluntly or that are said about him very bluntly that are big flashing mileposts. And they give us a very clear picture, a summary picture of Jesus Christ of the Bible. And these mileposts, I believe, are easy to see and easy to remember and they'll help us to know the difference between Bible Jesus and all the other Jesuses out there, including the Jesus of American Christianity, the churchianity. So they're good. In one of those, we see Jesus goes to heal Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5. And he comes in there and all these people are weeping and moaning, the ones that supposedly care about this uh, synagogue leader and his family, weeping and moaning. And Jesus said, why are you folks crying? She's not dead, she sleeps. She's just sleeping. And then all of these people that were so sad, and crying, their immediate response was to laugh Jesus to scorn. Mm-hmm. That tells you that their grief was fake. That there's virtue signaling back there in first century Palestine. It's nothing new here today. <laughs> Laughed in the scorn. And then we're told in Mark chapter 5, verse 40. But when he had put them all out, Jesus put them out. Now, if I told you that somebody came to my house and I put them out, what does that mean? It means I threw them out. But if I were to tell you that somebody came, came to visit my house and I put them outside, what does that sound like? I put them somewhere for a purpose. Like I'm going to put you outside and I'm going to show you something or whatever. See, the modern Bibles get messing with this. They don't say that Jesus put them out. They say they put, him, put them outside. That OESV does that there in Mark 5.40. Let me be assured that Bible Jesus throws people out. American Jesus just puts them outside. Okay? you got to watch this stuff. Jesus Christ put people out. That word there in Greek, ekbalo, the verb, is the same verb that's used when it talks about Jesus casting out devils. Jesus don't take devils and just put them outside. He throws them out. Jesus threw those people out. There comes a time that we need to throw people out of our churches. If you throw somebody out of your church because they're a scorner or they're a cancer bringing reproach on the body of Christ, then you're doing what Jesus did. When you tolerate it because you're a coward, you're not doing what Jesus did. You're not following His example. What does Proverbs say? Cast out the scorner. And you'll have peace. Well, Jesus lived by his own word. He threw them out. So you've got to watch these Bibles that mess with God's word like they've done here. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. Just like Jesus told Nicodemus, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. When he sits on that throne in Jerusalem, the Messiah, and he has that portion allotted to the prince there in the earthly Jerusalem, it'll be the Son of Man which is in heaven. Because His throne and His presence will be in the new Jerusalem. Heaven come down. Let me get to the end of verse 3 here. There shall be no more curse, idyllic society. 
The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. Access, direct access to God. Not just spiritually, but physically. And His servants shall serve Him. Internal affairs. Guaranteed livelihood. Those in that living, that live in that city for, for the millennium and all of eternity will have a guaranteed livelihood. Never have to worry about not having a job. Because His servants shall serve him. Man, that's a job I'd like to have. In fact, this very thing is promised to the church at Philadelphia. Promised to the church at Philadelphia who we're told kept the Word of God. Didn't mess with the Word of God like some of these Bible scholars do. Kept it. And for that reason, Jesus said, I'm going to keep you from the tribulation. You don't have to worry about that. And I got, I'm going to tell you a little something about those that overcome. He that overcometh, Revelation 3.12, this is a detailed explanation of what it says here at the end of verse 3 in chapter 22. What does it mean his servants will serve him? Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out. The, the temple in the New Jerusalem is a presence. It's not a building. So those that overcome will be a pillar in the presence of God and of the Lamb. And they'll never, they'll never leave that presence. Even if they leave the city. A pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall no more go out. And I will write upon him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God. Which is New Jerusalem. An access badge. Come and go as he pleases. Which cometh down out of heaven from my God. So it comes down out of heaven from God. It's not just created with a new heaven and a new earth. It comes down at a point in the present creation, which is the millennium, and then transcends into the new heaven and new earth. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Anybody that's got a ear needs to hear this because this is what's promised to those that overcome. Who is he that overcometh? But he that believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Who, that, who is he that overcometh? Him that is born again. Who is he that is born again? Him that is born of God. Who is he that is born of God? Him that believes on the one God has sent and repents and trusts in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So I kind of like to think that when it says his servants shall serve him and there'll be pillars in this temple or this presence of God. There is no literal temple in the New Jerusalem, the Lamb. And God or the temple thereof. I kind of like to think in light of what Isaiah says that we'll have guaranteed livelihood as national park rangers. National park rangers. Man, that's a coveted job, man. What a cool thing it would be to be a national park ranger. I have a friend, Russ, who's a park ranger at Yellowstone. Now, he's a God-fearing man, loves the Lord, and he has to navigate all this garbage about evolution and masking and, and all of this propaganda that even our national parks put out today, millions of years and all that. He has to navigate that stuff. He does a pretty good job with it. And he's always been a faithful witness. But what a cool job it would be to be a national park ranger. And what I read here about a city that has no curse and lions laying down with the lamb and rivers of water and the tree of life everywhere, it kind of seems to me like one great big national park. And that... God's servants will be park rangers. And we won't have to worry about any of this evolution, millions of years, BS. 
Because that's exactly what it is. And I don't know how else to say it. Paul told, Paul told his uh, people he was preaching to, he uses great plainness of speech. So I'm just using plainness of speech. All that is garbage. And we won't have to worry about that. We can tell folks exactly what all this is. And it comes from God. Glorified park rangers. I kind of like to think that way. It'd be cool to have a guaranteed job as a park ranger for the rest of your life. His servant shall serve him. I'm going to stop there. When you look at chapter 22, verse 3, through verse 5, it kind of all goes together. So when I'm talking about the internal affairs or the internal civic affairs of this city, idyllic society, no more curse, access, the throne is there, guaranteed livelihood, his servant shall serve him. And then we go on to learn in verses 4 and 5 what that looks like in a little more detail. But I'm going to stop there today. Um, I stumbled on Psalm 84 this week. And I'm going to leave you with this because it relates to what we've just read about. The courts of the Lord. Psalm 84 is in that book 3 of the Psalms that corresponds to book 3 of the law of God, the Leviticus. And so a lot of the Psalms in in book 3 talk about the sanctuary. And they have lots to teach us. When I look at Psalm 84, I say, if I wanted to sum it up, you love God or you claim to love God, then you love His house. You don't love God and hate His house. You don't love God and hate His church. You don't love God and hate the bride. So this garbage about I love God and I worship Him on my own time. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to have fellowship with anybody else. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. You don't love God. Yeah, there's a whole lot of hypocrites out there. But if you believe the Bible and you believe Jesus' words and His promise, then the church He built is still there. There's still a remnant that can be found. But you didn't love God and hate His house. Israel didn't do it. We don't do it. And that's kind of the theme here of Psalm 84. How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. Shouldn't the gathering of the believers be amiable, something we desire, instead of something we try to make the least little excuse to get out of? Like a bunch of coward pastors who were scared to death of themselves getting sick. They didn't give two thoughts to their congregation getting sick. I can promise you. Just an excuse. Man, the governor says something. Man, that's the excuse we need. We ain't got to go to church on Sunday morning. But the righteous man says, How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord. But look, look down here at verse 10. We know this phrase from, from a chorus that's sung a lot nowadays. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. But it's the next part of that verse that's profound. That doesn't make it into that chorus. I don't know why. The psalmist says, I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in that new Jerusalem than to have all the riches and wealth and power that this world has to offer. Just a doorkeeper. I was talking to a guy recently about the gospel and we were talking about the, 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 the evil in this nation and the coming judgment of God. And he spoke kind of roughly about how he was waiting for that trumpet to blow and that Jesus Christ was coming back soon. And he figured that when Christ came back that Christ was going to look at him and say, you need to go stand in a corner and I'm going to deal with you later. Probably going to say that to some of us. But in this man's eye, just being a doorkeeper in the house of God was preferable to the tents of the wicked. Do we really desire that? Do we really desire 
as the psalmist did, or are we still caught up in this American dream, which is really a nightmare? Are we willing to give up all this stuff, or do we, are we content in the tents of wickedness? And make no mistake, the United States is a great big circus tent of wickedness. Make no mistake. Let's be like the psalmist. When we read about this new, this new Jerusalem, our future home, a tree of life, river of life, lions laying down with lambs, no more curse, serving God, the throne, then let's be like the psalmist. Oh, Lord, just to be a doorkeeper. And guess what? The promise for the overcomer is not to be a doorkeeper, it's to be a pillar. Let's desire those things. Let's desire those things. Let's endure these dark days in light of these promises. Amen. And by God's Spirit and God's power, we will. For those that are born again are not only heirs of God, they're joint heirs of Jesus Christ and everything He inherits, we inherit as blood-bought saints of the living God. So I will finish up the blueprint next time and then that'll be a good stopping point. I believe one more Sunday I'll be with you, and we'll go back out on the road. And all that will leave for us to do is the epilogue. After 10 years, we're coming back to the Isle of Patmos. Can you believe that? After 10 years, we're going to come back to the Isle of Patmos, and we're going to wrap up this book. And I'm telling you, some of the most profound part of this entire book is in those last few verses. Some of the strongest warnings, one of the most appropriate prayers, some of the strongest warnings in all of Scripture and one of the most appropriate prayers for us today is found in those last verses. So we'll get to it. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Your Word. We're grateful for Your promises. How amiable are Thy tabernacles, O Lord. And we're thankful that through Jesus Christ, Your Holy Spirit tabernacles with us. And so even our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And we should use it to bring You honor and bring You glory. Lord, we're thankful that we can know You through Your revelation. We're thankful that you hold, withhold no good thing from those who fear you and you prove it by giving us a glimpse of those future things. May these things that we stand to inherit as heirs of God and co-heirs or joint heirs with Jesus Christ, may they compel us like Israel of old to be ashamed of our sin, to quit making excuses for it and, 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 to, and to try to explain away or minimize our lukewarmness, but that we would strengthen our feeble knees that judgment would begin at the house of God, that we would be strong and strengthen ourselves in your promises to be lights in these dark days. Oh, Lord, help us to desire just a doorkeeper's position in the temple of God and the great circus tent of wickedness that has become our country. Lord, we look forward to the day when there will be no more curse, when the lion will lay down with the lamb when we will have access to your throne physically as we do spiritually now. We can enter in your throne room by Jesus Christ, the intercessor, and find grace and mercy in time of need, and we can do it boldly. We thank you for that. But thank you for the day when the spiritual and the physical will be one, when the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven will be one. And we look forward to that. We look forward to the ages to come that Paul speaks of in which you will show us all the great mercies and benefits of your grace. We ask that you would hasten these things, O oh Lord. We ask that you would hasten them. That you would, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down. 
that you would arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And we wait for that. Go with us this week as we exit these doors into a great big mission field. Bless the food we're about to eat. May it give us the physical strength that your word has given us spiritually this morning. And bless our fellowship. To desire to be in your courts and your tabernacles, dear God, is to covet, to, 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 to long for the fellowship of the saints, the true building of God, the true tabernacle. We acknowledge you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.